Welcome, dear readers. You're listening to Time to Read, a Winnipeg Public Library podcast book club. We're recording today from Winnipeg, which is within Treaty 1 territory, the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Inanu, and Dakota peoples, and in the national homeland of the Red River Métis. Our drinking water comes from Shoal Lake 41st Nation in Treaty 3 territory. In this episode, we will be discussing The Rakes by Scarlett Peckham. I'm Dennis from the Idea Mill, and I've always thought of myself as the neighborly sort, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> Across the table from me is... I'm Toby. I'm an outreach librarian based out of here at Millennium Library, and I guess I'll just take this opportunity to get it out of the way and say penis. <gasps> <laughs> Well and done. across the table for me is... That's a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. Uh, my name is Trevor. I'm the branch head at the Louis Rail Library, and I don't know what I'm going to wear to this year's Gullwin Festival. Mm-hmm. A good book can carry me away From an ever-engined ordinary day yeah. So keep it down, leave me And you, dear readers, we wouldn't do this without you. Do you have a scandalously hot take on a book we're reading? Send us an email forthwith. You can find our email address and all our social media outlets by going to wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca and scrolling to the bottom of the page. Hang around till the end of the episode to enjoy our favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds. Toby's going to tell us about the author, after which Trevor will give us a summary of the book. Okay, Scarlett Peckham. There is very little information out there about her. So wait, you started with penis, now you got Peckham? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, There's really no profiles or interviews or articles with her. She doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. And it could be because she's a private person, um, but I suspect this is not the case because there are some podcast episodes that she is on and she talks about herself. And my theory, and maybe I'm projecting here, is that... The literary establishment doesn't take romance writers seriously, and so she, as a author, is not worth writing about. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that it's not that, but that's what I'm thinking. I'll just start with some facts about her that I learned from listening to one of those podcasts, and then I'll read her website bio, because that's all I've got. So Scarlett Peckham is a pseudonym. Scarlett is her middle name, and Peckham is the name of a neighborhood in London. She chose the pen name as when she started writing, she was still working a day job. She only started writing in 2005. Her first books did not get any attention from big publishing houses, so they were self-published. And self-publishing gave her more leeway to be kind of weird and feminist and angsty. She starts her writing day by playing online Uno, and she does her writing mid-morning and early afternoon when there's been some time for her ideas from the day before to sink in. And then here is her website bio. Scarlett Peckham fell in love with romance novels as a child, sneaking paperbacks from the stash in her grandmother's closet. By the time she came of age, she had exhausted her library supply and begun to dream of writing one of her own. Scarlett studied English at Columbia University and built a career in communications, but in her free hours always returned to her earliest obsession, those delicious, big-hearted books you devour in the dark and can never bear to put down. Her Golden Heart winning debut novel, The Duke I Tempted, was named Best Romance Novel of 2018 by BookPage and The Washington Post and called Astonishingly Good by The New York Times Book Review. She recently moved to Los Angeles after spending most of her life in Brooklyn and London. When not reading or writing romance, she enjoys drinking immoderate quantities of white wine, watching The Real Housewives, and dressing her cat in a bow tie. (laughs) 
which you can see pictures of on her Instagram page. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah, I don't know if, if plot is the most important thing in uh, this novel, but I turned to my old friend, the Kirkus Reviews, which is my favorite book review organization, for their summary of the Ray Kess. So this, this was a starred review too, wasn't it? On Kirkus? I, it was. Yeah. Let me just say this about Kirkus Reviews. They don't mess around. If they don't like a book, they're just going to come right out and say it, which I kind of appreciate. Other book review sites, they just won't review a book. And then you have to kind of read between the lines. Did they not review it because they didn't like it or did they not review it because it slipped through the cracks? But Kirk is the go right for it. They'll say, this is garbage. And when they uh, start a review, you better pay attention to it. Here's what Kirkus, the good people at Kirkus had to say about the Raycas. Seraphia Arden is loved by her friends, but feared by polite society. She's a rather unpopular figure in most circles, thanks to her writing about women's rights and the rumors about her numerous affairs, all completely true and unacceptable in the 1790s. She's so notorious, in fact, that she's had to return home to Kestrel Bay in Cornwall to work quietly on her most explosive book yet. It's here that she meets Adam Anderson, a Scottish widower who is anxious to grow his practice as an architect so that he can provide for his two young children. She's instantly attracted to him, proposing a no-strings-attached fling, but he resists temptation until he doesn't. Their attraction grows quickly, but the closer they get, the more painful memories surface for both of them. Anonymous town residents keep trying to drive Serafina away, and she abuses alcohol to cope with her past and current trauma. Adam, scared to abandon his tame but stable life, tries to let Serafina go. And when he succeeds, she is heartbroken. When she finally releases her memoir and all her secrets become public, Adam realizes he can no longer justify his choice, but it might be too late for their love to survive. This is the first book in Peckham's new Society of Sirens series, and like its heroine, it is thrillingly complex and suspenseful. Peckham's previously established talent for creating strong-willed heroines and heroes who respect them shines here along with her knack for creatively spicy scenes of intimacy. Given how well each member of the Society of Sirens is developed in this volume, readers will be anxious to read the next installment. Solid review. Yeah. You can't go wrong with Kirkus. And since they gave such a good review, we can end the episode. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, so what did you guys think of the book? First impressions? I mean... <laughs> I, We're all looking at each other yeah, meaningfully. Yeah. You know, I, I, as I was reading this, I was thinking, like, you know, this is one of the the great things about reading, about reading novels, is is the pure escapism, that you get to go into this world, you get to meet these likable, attractive, tragic people, they have graphic sex. You're cheering them on. There's a few, uh, you know, wrinkles in the road, so to speak. But then, it, spoiler, ends happily. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I don't know. Is that how you guys thought? I don't know about the graphic sex part. There's not a lot of, ac- like, well... Do- <laughs> oh, wait, wait. wait. Did, are you saying there weren't enough sex scenes in the no, book? No, I'm saying like the... the sex okay. scenes were there were not graphic enough for you. <laughs> no, no. What I'm saying is I think people have this idea of sex being like penis and vagina. And there was only one of those scenes in this book. That is true. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's what I find really interesting about historical romance is because... In these stories, usually, you know, if two people aren't married, they can't have sex. Or if they have sex, there's like big, well, 
having sex doesn't lead to the repercussions. Getting pregnant will lead to the repercussions. And so it's all about like that tension and like how can it, you make it sexy without them actually having sex. Mm, true. Like, yeah, there, there was scenes of intimacy without having, you know. I, I think all those things that they sex. did count as sex. Yeah. Even yeah. When, he, when he shows up for Sunday supper and they end up doing butt stuff. <laughs> I mean, come on now. Well, okay, the supper part doesn't count. But <laughs> I wanted to hear what they had for supper. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, things escalated fast at that Sunday supper. You gotta believe. Yeah. yeah the yeah. guy shows up for a meal and then all of a sudden stuff's happening. And no one's getting any food. No. no. Why are we hungry? I didn't even remember the supper part. Well, I don't think they, they ever ate. No, they, they didn't, didn't have fight after, they didn't the, get there. after yeah. the business. They, you know, there was, yeah. there was a big fight. She made her secretary throw out the food. Yeah. No one to... was hungry after that. And yeah. I don't blame them. Neither was I. <laughs> but yeah, there was a lot of amorous activity. Spoilers, there was a lot of graphic language, as Toby alluded to in her intro. Uh, I don't think she ever actually says the word penis, though. Does she? Might no. Just be, I, I know. That's yeah. why when you came right out with it there, I was... Uh, well, yeah, she uses other words. She does she use other words. Many other words. Genitalia. <laughs> Genitalia. Genitalia, I believe, is a, yes. is a word that might have just have been invented by me. Yes. The, the, speaking of the sex scenes, I, I do like the fact, even though I'm not a fan of trigger warnings per se, there's a trigger warning in the front talking about how sexy it is. Hmm. And I thought, is that really necessary? Like, if you're going to read a romance book... It kind of is, because, I mean, I haven't read much historical romance, but, like... I read one historical romance and there was no sex in it because oh, the like the rip. two characters aren't married and they can't have sex. So it's just about like lo- gazing each- at each other and like they have to get married and they don't get married until the end of the book. So you have to read the second. But they're yeah, I mean, and I, I have read I've read a total of about a half dozen romances over the course of my life and they all have very different levels of spiciness. Mm-hmm. Some were extremely tame. Like uh, Danielle Steele that I recall was so tame that you could fall asleep reading it very easily. And other stuff was kind of medium where it mentions them. It gets a little hot, but then it kind of fades off and you're left to imagine the rest. And then, of course, there's Ice Planet Barbarians, (laughs) uh, which we read at Toby's recommendation a while ago. (laughs) And and this one, which is also very spicy. So I imagine that romance readers are like readers of other genres where they, they have their niche that they like. Oh, totally. Or at least they like to know when they're going outside of it, you know? Well, yeah, I think romance novels as, as sort of an industry, yeah, it covers so many different things. Like, I, I just read this one quote that I liked that said it, it covers everything from evangelical to BDSM. Yeah. So depending, mm-hmm. and then this other quote I, I like, it says, whatever uh, your cup of tea is, someone's pouring it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good phrase. Yeah. <laughs> But, but what the trigger warning kind of reminded me of is a few years ago, there was a, a thing on The Onion, the uh, satirical news site, where it said that Pfizer had developed a chicken avocado sandwich so delicious, you need a prescription. <laughs> I, just, I always thought that was funny. So I don't know. I don't know why I thought of that sandwich when I thought of this uh, sexy <laughs> trigger warning, but that's that's the way things work. I think you're still hung up on the dinner that they didn't have. Oh, I know. I mean, sure. Kissing and hugging before supper? Sure. <laughs> yeah. But, you know... Yeah, so there was a lot of sex, as we've alluded to, although very little penetrative sex. Well, penis and vagina. That's yeah, okay, yeah. that's more accurate. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll provide a diagram of all the. Uh, <laughs> no, we won't. No, we won't. But you know what? Yes, there was sex, but I also felt that there was maybe there could have been more sex. 
I think there could have been more. Well, like, it felt like there was quite a while in the build-up between the two of them, and will they or won't they? And and then there was that big, you know, rainstorm scene when well, you're, mm-hmm. you, you feel like you, you kind of earned it at that point, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like you're you don't want to, you know the first page of them you know jumping you're like where's where's the tension? But then, I, I don't know. I felt like there were sort of long stretches. Ah, like there's I, I felt it was kind of like that, that goofy subplot. With their friend that was locked in the asylum, oh, and, and, yeah. and they went to yeah. bust her out and stuff. Like, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, there was no that, sex in that. You thought that was goofy? <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, the whole idea that she was locked up wasn't goofy. That was kind of uh, uh, horrible. But the whole it going felt like there, a caper. Yeah, like yeah. they went there in disguise, and they went. You know, there was a distraction. Like, I mean, it was fun. Maybe yeah. that's what I like. I could sort of see it. Like, if they if this was turned into a, a movie, that would be like the fun. The fun bit, yeah, where although, they kind of pull the wool over the eyes of the doctor and everything. Oh, still a dangerous thing because you know they could have gotten caught and maybe been imprisoned themselves. So I don't know. To me, that kind of fit in with the whole society of sirens thing, where they're fighting for equality and and trying to make social change, and there are social forces at work that want to keep them from doing that, and it has this element of danger which adds to their mystique. They're sexual, they're fighting for political change, and they're willing to take direct action. So that, that to me, fit. And personally, I thought there was plenty of sex in it, and I'm glad that there was as much plot as there was. As uh, I really thought the story was pretty good. I enjoyed the plot of the story outside of the actual sex parts. Not to say I didn't enjoy the sex parts, but it's not my main thing when I'm reading. I could take or leave that for the most part. But uh, I thought the story actually played out nicely, including the caper where they <laughs> go to the asylum. <laughs> well, you know, I thought what I enjoyed about it too was that it it kind of subverts the genre, but at the same time really respects the genre. Like it, in the sense, like the whole title of the Ray Kess, as we probably talked about ad nauseum, is the idea that usually it's the male who is sort of like the scoundrel at the beginning, and it takes a good woman to kind of tame him. And and the the kind of conceit of this book is that the Ray Kess, the the gender roles have have been reversed, where she's the scoundrel, she's the one with the bad reputation, the ruined woman, as she says at the beginning, and then it's this uh, you know innocent uh, doe-eyed Scottish architect who is sort of the damsel in distress, so to speak. Yet still has all of those elements. Like it's like if you were a fan of romance, I think you could read this book and fully enjoy it as a romance novel. At the same time, appreciating that it's doing something different too, but not so different that it would be something that a romance enthusiast would be disappointed in, if you know what I mean, right? Like, despite the changes in gender, it's still very heteronormative. It's still very kind of, I was going to say, white. Although I think her friends, there's a bit of um, diversity with her pals, right? I, yeah, I think one of them is, uh, is, is black. Is this her biracial, I think? or, or black? Yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's an attempt to kind of broaden, but a lot of it is still very much in that. But then again, if you're writing, the story takes place in 1797, I guess. And you want to be sort of historically accurate, too. I, I don't know. I mean, there's that show Bridgerton based on the Julian Quinn novels, and it uses very diverse cast. And it's super interesting and fun for those who watch it, which isn't me. But I've seen a couple episodes, <laughs> of course. I haven't seen any episodes. Yeah. Historical romance really is outside of my reading. This is the very first historical romance I've ever read. I think me, too. I've always thought I'd find it kind of dull, but that's a stereotype that clearly did not play out here, because I thought it was very interesting following along. 
Okay, so one thing I feel like you can almost guarantee reading a historical novel is that they will pull out a bunch of archaic language. And when I started the book, I found it a little slow at the beginning because usually when you're trying to establish the setting, you go really heavy on that kind of stuff. So like the first chapter or two had a lot of extra words that didn't need to be there but were there for the flavor. And then after that, it kind of settled down and only tossed them in occasionally. Yeah, I had to look in the dictionary a bit for like luge. L-O-U-G-E. I don't even know how to pronounce it. And a few other words that were just tossed in like that. There were two of my word nerds in like the first 20 pages of this book. Yeah. Yeah, it was kind of exciting. Language has changed a lot over the years. It's uh, one of the things about looking at historical fiction is that it's hard to understand the mindset of the time. So we're always translating from present day to a past setting. The sirens are very focused on equality for women, which we would take as not controversial today. You know, so this character who at the time would be considered a radical, you know, we would think, yeah, go, you know, like, I, I, I think modern audiences wouldn't be at all like upset with her for her politics because it's much more in line with present day politics. But we translated back then and kind of assumed that it would be very different. I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say But I that. mean, the uh, like how she doesn't have any sort of control over her. Well, she she tries to assert control over her own body and her reproductive system because she doesn't really have any options. And, you know, you can really parallel that to today and, you know, the mm-hmm. overthrow of Roe v. Wade. And True. Yeah. Um, and I didn't mean to say by that, that, oh, we solved all those problems. Equality is done. But it's just like now I don't think it's a controversial position for most people to do that. And something like Roe v. Wade being overturned produced a lot of anger and a lot of criticism, and rightfully so, which you wouldn't imagine being the case in the 1797 of the book. There, that would, it would be uncontroversial that you couldn't have an abortion unless maybe your husband allowed it. Well, I mean, similar uh, to that point is I'm always kind of interested in how stories fit into the, the larger structure of stuff that's going on so i thought well what was what else was going on in the world in 1797 so found a couple of things that might be of interest for example john adams was sworn in as the second president of the united states and then 200 years later became a punchline in lin-manuel miranda's hamilton musical you might find this interesting in france the first parachute descent was done by i guess somebody who was testing parachutes and you may be saying to yourself, how could you test a parachute? Well, he did it from a hot air balloon. And uh, I couldn't really see whether there was ever a second attempt, <laughs> but that happened. But this one, this third bit I thought was quite interesting. This guy, John Etherington, who was a haberdasher, hat maker, he wore a top hat in public for the first time in 1797. And it caused such an uproar that he was fined 50 pounds for being a public nuisance. <laughs> So, so this, that's the world we're living in. Someone's fine for wearing a top hat. We can only imagine what a book about women's rights would, would do. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It would just cause people to jump out of high air balloons. <laughs> but at least they could have so. a parachute, maybe. <laughs> so anyway, that's neither here nor there. I just thought that would fits it into a bit of a social context. Mm-hmm. Top hats were considered risque. How long before they were popularly adopted? I don't know, but I know Queen uh, Victoria's husband wore one. Mm. So would that have been in the 1800s? Yeah. It's like still probably like 30, 40 years later. Mm. I guess if you're just used to like regular sized hats, 
<laughs> and you see a guy with a top hat, you're probably thinking either guy has a, like a crazy big head, an egg head, or what's going on with that? It's just being a jerk. I mean, everyone knows hats should be a certain height, and when well, you go yeah, above I mean, them, that extra that extra length that's not doing anything, right? Yeah, you know. Well, you can hide things under there. Like sure. Yeah, I guess snacks. you could like rabbits. Snacks. Yeah. So top hats were accepted before women's rights, then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But so, you know, I don't think you know top hats had easy either, Toby. <laughs> I wonder how much 50 pounds would have been in today's dollars. Oh, a lot. I yeah, think. That's like a lot, right? Like, it means it would be a decent fine now. Right? Over a hundred bucks. Yeah. Still better than being locked away in an asylum yeah. on the word of your husband. Yeah. Which is one of those aspects of the book. Like, the idea that I could lock up my wife because she said something I didn't like is like an absurd notion to me right now. That's not an exaggeration. People could do that and did. So that sets kind of a high price for the activity that the characters are taking place in. Is there, though? Because, I mean, it's never really acknowledged, but these characters are like middle class, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. And yes, Eleanor is in an asylum. But I would think that if these were lower class women, like, I don't know what would have happened to them. They would be jailed, they'd be sex workers, they'd be working in laundries. Like, how how is Serafina not arrested? How is she not persecuted in any way for these rights that she has? That's a good opinions. question. Yeah. Mm. There are definitely some gaps in terms of like my personal background knowledge of the time period and how all this stuff would have played out. And it, it doesn't really get covered much in the book because it's not as hot and steamy as uh, the other activities. <laughs> But that's maybe expecting a little much from a historical romance. I don't know. I also don't read general historical fiction, so I don't know how common it is for authors to kind of explain the context of the situation. But let's talk about the characters. Serafina. Oh, what a hot mess she is. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was fascinating how, like, she comes out, she's all like, I'm terrible, you should stay away from me, but let's go have sex. Oh, you have kids. Great. I'm going to be this wonderful, uh, delightful character with your children. And let's go to the festival. Let's do this and let's do that. And she's smart and she's funny and she's got like everything, including a lot of baggage, which creates that unpredictable wildness. And then you have Adam, who's a solid, straightforward architect working for a commission. Very straightforward, except he's actually very lustful. <laughs> Extremely lustful. So well, lustful, he... he killed his wife. Yeah, he's so <laughs> randy, he can't, under doctor's orders, stop having sex with his wife. Yeah. Killing her in the process. Oh, well, come on. Indirectly. They were both complicit. They were both, they were both sex fiends. <laughs> but, I mean, this points to the very thing that like i mean getting pregnant is so dangerous at this time like not only surviving the pregnancy but surviving the childbirth and so mm -hmm. like yeah like what do you do if there's no birth control i mean serafina has her her check her day timer with her check marks and her potions and her right. weird what are they the condoms condom? yeah is yeah. she keeping like some kind of a solution yeah, yeah. An oil, yeah. i think that must I'm be like, mm, historically like, no, 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 about that. <laughs> historically accurate um, but sex is very dangerous. Like, we take it for granted that we can plan our families accordingly or not, you know? Like, they, this was not an option back then. And if you got pregnant, 
you know, and you were not married, that that would have huge repercussions for for you, for the the baby daddy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even today, like I have, I lost an aunt to uh, childbirth. It still happens even with all of our advanced medical equipment and knowledge. Uh, so yeah, back then, much higher risk. It was really interesting to read like how far she went to try to prevent it. Yeah. yeah, and so I totally don't buy it that she got pregnant like as soon as they had sex. The like, one time? Yeah, I mean, she's so careful about tracking things and her potions, and it's always fine up until this one time, you know? Yeah, but I this was a that. very, very lustful man. So, you know, his, his sperm was working overtime there. Oh. Yeah. No, I mean, you'd think with that much experience, she was probably not that fertile. Yeah, and also, I mean... There's only a few days a month when a woman can get pregnant. Like, it's, yeah. you know, you... Right. It, I, yeah. yeah, but I kind of got the feeling that it's not like she was keeping track that well in that moment because, you know, he was... He had such fantastic shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> but she has her, her condoms. She has her potions. Yeah, like, but con condoms of that age were not very effective. Like, uh, I remember reading about years ago, like, sheepskin condoms. They're just... They're not great. Yeah. But uh, she is an experienced Rakes. She's had she, lots of sex like this, and she's only gotten pregnant, well, twice, but like... Right, but when, yeah. when she was yeah. very young and taking it... Well, not taking advantage of, but just, yeah, before she became a Rakes. But yeah. as you were describing her character, uh, Dancing a couple of ago, I was thinking, yeah, all the... All those things, and some of them seem contradictory, but it also sketches out, a, I felt like, a very three-dimensional character. Somebody that had all the sort of, you know, paradoxes that we all have with us, that she can she can have this quality, but at the same time have this quality. And she could be like this, but also sometimes like this. And, and I thought that uh, the author did a really good job with those um, character developments. I didn't feel like I was reading a, like a one-dimensional cardboard cutout, even though I knew that these were kind of like stock characters from... You know the romance world. I I felt like I was reading actual characters, people. I, I I believed in in them, and I think that was just maybe a testament to the quality of the of the writing. Yeah, I thought the writing was excellent. Really, you were saying like romance authors often often aren't taken very seriously. A lot of the genre authors, romance mystery is kind of considered trivial, you know. But there is quality writing in there. I. I, there was what was that scene? Mayhew was telling Adam about uh, this shocking thing that the Rakes had done, and it's uh, like he's in this awful thing. And of course, Adam's thinking, "Oh no!" And he's thinking about a different aspect of that that's awful. Then Mayhew is like, "Oh, it gets worse." And he's like, "How can it get worse?" And you know, they're both thinking different things completely. I thought that would have been a fantastic scene in a movie or a TV show. Mm -hmm. They could have played off that really well. And a lot of other scenes like that where there were l multiple layers of meaning, but written very naturally, like it wasn't forced, you know, it played out really well. Good quality writing. So will you be continuing the Society of Sirens series? I'm tempted to, but probably not, because I don't read as much as I used to. It's not for lack of the quality of writing. Like, I am curious what happens now since Jack Willow was uh, taken. I know. You know. That was quite generous. So, that's so an much example. for the happily ever after. Yeah, I know. Everything's going beautifully. You know, they're together now. Adam's painting again. She's writing and doing her thing. They're getting ready for the Institute. Uh, everything is going swimmingly. And Jack is taken. Well, you got to have a tease for the next one, don't you? Yeah. yeah. 
And Jack Willow, the character, is, I thought, very interesting how he was always off to the side. He was never the focal point, but it was still intriguing. Like his relationship with, uh, was it Cornelia? Was that the Eleanor. name? Uh, with Eleanor. Eleanor. Yeah, the- and it's like, you know, just a few little moments here and there, but he seemed like there would be enough depth there to pursue in another book. And, yep, now he's missing, so it's definitely got to follow up in the next one, and it's, I'd be curious what happens. Uh-huh. I have a weakness in that I'm a bit of a completist with everything. Uh, so if I find, if I find an author, I want to read everything by the author, or if I find a series, or if I find a band, I want to listen to all the music. So yes, I will probably carry on with the sirens <laughs> because I, I know that if it's out there, I won't be able to not read it. Speaking of which, did you ever finish Tales of the City? I did. I read all whatever nine of them. <laughs> okay. And so he is not kidding, folks. Yeah, he no, and they, uh, you know, with various, the, there were, you know, peaks and valleys in that series for sure. But yeah. I, I did, I did get to the end of it. You, Toby? Um, no, I will not be continuing the series. Mm. I, I enjoyed this book, but I read romance because I, like, it's fun. And it doesn't take itself too seriously. And I just didn't find this one as fun as the romances that I like to read. I don't think it intentionally takes itself seriously, but it just, it felt a little, a little serious to me. Okay. So it's no Ice Planet Barbarians. It is not Ice Planet Barbarians, which, by the way, I just started the second one of that series. (laughs) And this is definitely like a kind of a personal question. So, but you know, there's such a spectrum in, in romance. Do you have a particular sort of, sub brand that you go to more than others or is it just you don't think that way because one thing i found interesting say for example like with harlequin is that they rather than promoting individual authors they promote kind of their lines right it's like there's there's different brands so so it's uh, they're trying to appeal to sort of what people like not necessarily who they like which is great for the company not great for the authors necessarily so like you'll go and buy this particular imprint because you know it has just the amount of sex you like or not or whatever so uh, um i don't even know where i'm going with this oh yeah so like yeah is, i don't know or do you just sort of are you like a you know just flit about like, yeah i only have gotten into reading romance novels in the last few years so mm-hmm. i'm a i'm a newbie to the genre but generally i prefer contemporary romances which oh, yeah. is pretty popular these days mm-hmm. but uh, i have been enjoying the uh, i don't even know what you would call it the ice planet barbarian series sci-fi romance yeah uh, but i mean there's so many subgenres, which is great though right i mean great. you know something for everyone i think it's valuable to have a lot of different niches that you can enjoy yeah and romance definitely delivers you'd sent us a list of like Top 10 romance facts before the episode. Which that website did not look super reputable, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have to say, like, top 10 and most of the top 10 were, like, they sell a lot of books. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Let me see if I can find that list. Oh, yeah, some of it is, you know, kind of like maybe debunking preconceptions of people who read uh, romance. So, I mean, I said men read romance, too. Well, sure. 16% of romance readers are men. It says you get this image of maybe what they call, this is the website's word, not my crazy cat ladies that just read them. It says not true, although it says the average age for romance readers is 42. And most romance books are purchased by readers between the ages of 18 and 44. And again, it talks about how there's something for everyone. No matter what you're into, you will find your groove. And that ebooks. 
apparently romance novelists and the romance industry has really taken the ebook platform by storm. And a lot of it is because the readership, uh, you know, either finds an author they like and they want to read everything, just like what I just described myself a few minutes ago. But if they go to a bricks and mortar bookstore or even online, they won't be able to get the whole series or they can only get part of it. But with an ebook, you can, you can download the entire series and you can get right onto the next book right away. Because apparently, again, this is, these are just generalizations from a distributable website. So I don't know uh, where the facts, but they said that romance readers sometimes will read three or four books in a week. Hmm. I mean, I suppose that could be true with any type of genre, but... Uh, yeah. I do remember the romance paper book section having a lot of relatively thin books, so you could definitely fly through them. Yeah. I mean, I could sort of see, like, you know, you, you kind of know what you like. You want to get that thing and get right to it, right? As far as reading it, and you read a story, it doesn't have to be long. It's okay if it's formulaic. I do like the idea that one of the one of the hard and fast rules of romance is that they have to have happy endings. Uh, I kind of like that idea. I like the idea that you're going to go into something that's going to end in a positively, you know, no matter all the twists and turns, you're going to have a happy ending. You're not guaranteed a happy ending in life. So if you, you know, I, I kind of like the idea that you can read something where people get it, together. Where it is guaranteed. It is guaranteed. I think it is. Yeah. Like, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure if I'm speaking out of turn, but I think that's sort of one of the rules of romance, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, yeah. and there's something very comforting about that. And also the tropes. I mean, every romance novel has a trope and, you know, there's only a set amount of tropes and, you know, there's like one bed at the inn and there's enemies to lovers. And, mm -hmm. and it's just very comforting to like start one of these and to recognize the trope and to just like, Go go sure. into it. You know, you don't have to think too hard. You know where it's going to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, that reminds me. The other the other day, a, a customer came into the library and she said she hadn't used the library in a while, and she was just looking for like a, a light romance. And so I thought, oh great, I was going to you know hop up and we went down the romance aisle, and and I was kind of saying to her, you know, you're not, you know, you've heard the saying, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. And I said, but you know what, in in romance, you kind of. You kind of can, like, you know, I was saying, like, if, if the, if the cover is, is predominantly red and black, you're probably looking at a paranormal, uh, uh, romance. Uh, if it looks kind of cartoony and bright, you're probably looking at like a, like a fun romance. If you're looking at somebody wearing a long dress and you have a man that's shirtless, could be historical, probably. And, uh, and so we were kind of looking at the different, steamy. yeah. And so I, you know, I said, you know, it really, there's something for everyone. Just like we've said before, I said, you know, some people like Greek tycoons and their unexpected pregnancies. That's mm. a thing. And also when I worked at Outreach a number of years ago, we used to go to retirement homes. And, uh, this is the first time I realized that a sub genre of romance is nurse and doctor stories. Yes. And we used to always carry a box. They used, they used to be, be published. They were had a, they were blue. So the publishers knew that there was a certain market for stories that I was, I never read one, but I imagine that they were quite traditional. I imagine that the doctor was probably male. The nurse was female. I can't say for sure. Maybe they switched it up sometimes, but it was the nurse doctor, which seems to me kind of like an HR problem. Like, you should, like I mean, there's definitely a power imbalance there, but I imagine if the rules of romance apply, they get together in the end and they're happy. Interestingly, I don't see that often in the regular print romances. It seemed to be the large print romances exclusively that had a lot of doctor-nurse uh, mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's still the case. Mm. But there are also trends in romance. Like uh, right now, I think the historical stuff has really taken off with Bridgerton. Yeah. 
you see a lot of books with like dukes and uh, earls and stuff in the yes. cover. Cowboys remain popular. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's a, a genre that's often referred to as bonnet romances, where it's like the Amish or, uh, you know, plain folk. And those ones have the filthiest sex scenes. <laughs> Tell me you're kidding, Trevor. No, no, Tell joking, me you're joking. kidding. I think. Uh... <laughs> no, I think those are like the super chaste ones. Oh, for sure. That's probably like, you know, uh, when someone pats somebody on, on the shoulder. Maybe there's a kiss at the end. Very yeah. brief glances. Glances, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm wondering, like, you know how, okay, if every romance has a happy ending, the paranormal, how does that work out? Like, let's say it's like a lady that falls in love with a werewolf. Well, think about Twilight. Does that end happily? I think so. Like, I haven't read all of those, but I think Bella and uh, what's his name? They Edward. Yeah, they have like a baby. Doesn't she? Huh. Be- yeah, doesn't she become a vampire? I don't know. Yeah, I guess that but, would be a happy ending for a vampire. Would be if you get turned into a vampire, but you like it. <laughs> or whatever. Like, yeah. I guess in a werewolf... Turns out it's not so bad, yeah. I guess in a werewolf story, if you get bit by the werewolf, and they're like, oh, I'm a werewolf, but at least I get to be with the person I love. And when the full moon comes out, we just run around. Hmm. I'm guessing. I don't know. Or you could just only hook up when there's a full moon. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Once a month, yeah. the fur the fur appears. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've gotten kind of general and a little <laughs> off track now. Um do we have any other comments about this particular book, about the Rakes? Would you recommend it? And I know you're going to follow up on it, but that's just because you're compulsive. <laughs> <laughs> I, what my only closing comment would be, uh, I thought that, the, again, we're talking about how the covers say a lot about what the content is. And on the cover, it's quite interesting that it is a, a classic romance cover with a, a lady in a, a billowing dress and a shirtless man. And yet it's kind of interesting. Like she is, seems to be like in the power position above him. And he's kind of subjugated in the kind of the, the, uh, damsel in distress. So it's, even though it, you, from, from 10 feet away, you could look at the cover and say, yeah, that's a romance. I thought that it was just kind of a slightly subtle nod to the fact that it's not, uh, as traditional as one might think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it still is. Yeah. Scarlett Peckham actually um, got to choose the models for the cover shoot and like oh, helped really? direct it. Yeah, she was hmm. she was quite involved in the cover art for this book. I should have looked more closely at the cover. Yeah. Unfortunately, that one has a barcode right in the head of yeah. Adam. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah it's unfortunate. <laughs> so, would you recommend it, Toby? No, to be to be blunt, I it was fine. Like if I was gonna recommend romance, it would be something else. But I did I did enjoy it. I think it's nice to see like a feminist take on a historical romance. Hmm. Yeah, I think I, think, I was gonna say the thing to keep in mind too is when you say recommend it. I mean, recommend it to who? You know, yeah. I mean, there's I mean, there might be some people that this is their jam. I mean, if somebody came in and said, the last book I read was uh, The Hunt for October by Tom Clancy, <laughs> I probably wouldn't uh, recommend The Request. Maybe I would. Maybe you should try it. Maybe I will. Yeah. yeah. You never know. Um, I remember having a patron who was really into, like, westerns and uh, action stuff, and, one, and he had read all the ones that we had, and... He ended up going off with uh, Nora Roberts uh, afterwards, and he loved them and just kept coming back to them. So, you know, sometimes you can be surprised. And I will say, like, for myself, I would recommend this if you like some steamy sex scenes because I think they were pretty well written. If you're into that, I think you'll find it a little arousing. And I also found the story to be quite good uh, and the writing in general good. So if you just want, like, a kind of a, a neat, historical sexy book then uh this 
be a good one to start with. I can't find anything wrong with it. I think it was really well done. And with that, we will move on to our next segment called Can You Tell Me a Book I Would Also Like? I'll go. So there were a lot of directions I could have taken with this, and I think I went in a bit of an unconventional one because I'm recommending these two novellas by Mary Wollstonecraft, um, Mary and the Wrongs of Woman. So Mary Wollstonecraft is mentioned in the foreword of the Rakes. She is sort of the inspiration, I guess, for, for the Serafina character. Um, so if you know nothing about Mary Wollstonecraft, she lived in the late 18th century, and she's really kind of um, an early feminist. Um, she's considered uh, a founding feminist philosopher. She did a lot of things, but she was primarily a writer. She wrote fiction. She wrote nonfiction. Her most well-known work is um, The Vindication of the Rights of Woman that came out in 1792 and, you know, argued that women are not inferior to men. They just appear to be so because of a lack of education. She's also, I think, overshadowed by the fact that she's the mother of Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, though Wollstonecraft did die 11 days after her daughter was born. And I don't know if you grabbed onto this the way that I did, but in the foreword, it also mentions that Mary Shelley lost her virginity on her mother's grave. Do you remember that? <laughs> oh, I'd yeah. forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I had to I had to look this up. And it does seem that it is likely true. Mary Shelley, who was Mary Godwin at the time, was being courted by Percy Shelley, the poet. And much of their courtship occurred in the graveyard where Wollstonecraft is buried. And it's likely their relationship was consummated in this graveyard. So it might have been on Wollstonecraft's grave. Maybe not. Somewhere Man, in the graveyard. That's pretty kinky. Yeah, hmm. yeah, pretty weird. But Wollstonecraft also, so she wrote these two novellas. Mary came out in 1788 and has the um, titular heroine forced into a loveless marriage for economic reasons, but fulfills her desires with two romantic friendships, one with a man and one with a woman. And in The Wrongs of Women, which came out about 10 years later in 1798, it's the story of a woman imprisoned in an insane asylum by her husband. Hmm. So we can see hmm. how that directly is related to the Rakes. And it's been a long, 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 long time since um, I read these novellas, but I recall them being pretty good. Like they're, they're kind of didactic, but they're entertaining and they're not like mired down in like really old fashioned language. And they're worth a read, but we don't have them in our collection, so you can borrow mine if you're interested. <laughs> get in contact with yeah. Toby if you want yeah. to. You can probably get them on Project Gutenberg, oh, too, Oh, yeah, think. good point, good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's uh, Mary and the Wrongs of Women by Mary Wollstonecraft. Well, my uh, recommendation this month is not a book, because I there were so many books to choose from, I couldn't pick one. So instead, I picked a documentary called Love Between the Covers, which you can find on Canopy, a uh, digital streaming service that is provided free with your library card membership at Winnipeg Public Library. Canopy with a K. It's okay to watch Canopy. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to tell you a little bit. I'm trying to do the in, in uh, I didn't do it as smoothly as Dennis did a couple episodes ago with the, the, the in, uh, the promotion the of promotion in, yeah. in it. But, uh, so anyway, what point I'm trying to get across is that this documentary, Love Between the Covers, really examines the romance novel industry from top to bottom, but focuses in on a few well known authors, including Jane Ann Krantz, 
Beverly Jenkins, who I found was very interesting. She was one of the first black authors who would write romance. And then there's quite a large section on, of course, the queen, Nora Roberts. She's Mm -hmm. interviewed and they talk about her and how she got started and a few other. And it's just a super interesting documentary about the strong community that exists between romance writers and their fans and how, unlike other genres, they're very sort of nurturing and supportive because they've had to be, because they've been sidelined for so long out of sort of the mainstream because they are predominantly women that they've, they've banded together and they've formed this really excellent group where anyone can join the romance writer of America. Even if you haven't written a book, you can, if you're thinking of writing a book, you can join it and they say, come on in. We're <laughs> going to tell you what we know, which I thought is super uh, excellent. And uh, so anyway, yes, uh, the movie's called Love Between the Covers and I'll never think of uh, romance books the same way after watching it. Good recommendation. So I don't read a lot of romance uh, or a lot of historical fiction, so it might be the best recommendation. But I am swerving a bit and suggesting This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone. Among the ashes of a dying world, an agent of the Commandant finds a letter. It reads, Burn Before Reading. Thus begins an unlikely correspondence between two rival agents hell-bent on securing the best possible future for their warring factions. Now what begins as a taunt, a battlefield boast, grows into something more, something epic, something romantic something that could change the past and the future, except the discovery of their bond would mean death for each of them. There's a war going on, after all, and someone has to win that war. So this one's a little hard to characterize. It's a sci-fi time travel war story. But it's not really sci-fi. It's more fantasy. And there's definitely a Romeo and Juliet thing going on with the protagonists. The prose has a poetic style to it. Uh, it plays out on an epic scale, like literally all of time is in the balance here. Uh, but it's a quick read. It's not too long. It's stylish. It's quirky. And yeah, uh, if you like romance on a big scale, I think this could fit in there. It's just not conventional. But uh, Is there any yeah. hanky-panky? No, it's not a steamy one at all. No, so there's no mention of body parts and such. I, I think this one is often tagged as LGBTQT. Plus, um, but the genders of the characters are not really relevant in some ways, um, cause they change a bit, you know, but, um, yeah, it's more kind of a, you know, romance of the heart kind of thing. Yeah. But an interesting book. So now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Nerd Words for Word Nerds, wherein our panelists plumb the depths of a word or phrase that has been on our minds lately. My nerd word is taken straight from the novel, so I'm a little worried that perhaps, I don't know, Toby or or you, Dennis, have something very similar, if not exactly the same word, but I'm just going to go ahead and say, because I don't have a backup, it's refulgent. <laughs> and uh, this uh, word was spoken by Serafina during the rainstorm. Uh, right before their first full-on love scene, where she talks about she always feels refulgent in the rain, and it means feels radiant or bright or brilliant as from the latin fulgari which means to shine brightly that's why i got for this month refulgent i do not have that word um i chose a couple words because i was worried someone was gonna take my word but i don't think that's happened um so my word is pasty or pasty do you do either of you have a preference for how that's pronounced i would say pasty but pasty that sounds awful though but i 
Well, uh, I think when in the Cornish context, pasty. Yeah. Because isn't that pasty the things you ladies might wear on their e- yeah nipples? Can you say nipples? Okay. <laughs> We've said penis. Penis nipples. Yeah, but you can't say nipple. <laughs> We will not say nipple on this episode. I don't think you can say pasty. Nipple, nipple, nipple. <laughs> um, so what I mean, did we I decide can, I can see where dance is coming from, though, because pasty, it sounds very close to pastry. Yeah. That, that's where my mind goes. Yeah, I, I feel better with pasty. Okay, maybe I'll just um, use the two interchangeably. <gasps> okay. But we'll we won't see. know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so pasty is referred to in this book. It's a, it's a food that... Goes on your nipples. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Are the children, Adam's children, they haven't had one before, and Serafina wants to make sure they do. So it is a British baked pastry made by placing an uncooked filling meat or vegetables on one half of a pastry circle and folding it in half and then crimping the curved edge. And it's very much associated with Cornwall. It's their traditional dish. Apparently, it accounts for 6% of the Cornish food economy. Mm. Um, And the term Cornish pasty was actually given protected status by the European Commission in 2011, which means that only pasties made in the county from a traditional recipe can use the name. Mm. Um, And when you Google pasty these days, you get a news story as this British bakery chain, Greg's, is set to open in Truro, which is a place in Cornwall, and the locals are very distraught about this. They do not want this Greg's chain pasties competing with their like local bakeries that make the real thing. Hmm. Yeah. I can see how that would be upsetting. Yeah. So there you go. Pasty or pasty. I still think pasty works better, but I understand Depends the concerns. what you are going to use it for. Yeah, we need a... <sighs> Cornwall resident to tell us. So Cornish pasty is kind of the same as like champagne. It's yeah. a predicted term. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, we try to engage with our Australian colleagues at the Perth Public Library. Oh. So maybe if any librarians from Cornwall are listening, they could let us know the correct usage and pronunciation. And someone from Cornwall is called Cornish, right? That's true. Yeah. So we could just go to the Cornish <laughs> branch and yeah. ask them. Ask Remy. Ask Remy for the correct use <laughs> and pronunciation. He might throw us out. <laughs> I also went with an archaic term, although I didn't go with one from the book because I figured there was a decent chance you guys would. Uh, and instead I went for one that I remember from when I was a kid, which is belly timber. Belly timber just means food. And it's archaic, an archaic term that went out before the, the story would have been like, so I think, uh, one of the things I read said that it wasn't really in serious use after about like, 1670 or so but i love the sound of the word belly timber wood for your belly when i was a kid we my parents subscribed to some of these like disney book of the month clubs and uh, an encyclopedia set and they'd always send out these yearly supplements and one of them had this story about old english words and the headline for it was don't glop your belly timber (laughs) glop being the term used for gulp (laughs) so don't don't gulp down your food Anyways, it's just a fun word, and I kind of wish it was a little more common. Belly timber. <laughs> I'm disappointed that you didn't choose the word quim. <gasps> <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, uh, it was only a matter of time. Yeah. I didn't even look it up. I don't know exactly what it means. Oh, come I'm, on. I'm afraid to, I'm afraid uh, to check now. I don't believe that for a moment. I, it's, it's true. You could tell me anything right now. You could tell me it's actually a different type of pie. And I would be like, okay. okay. 
I mean, just don't Google image search uh, pasty. <laughs> I'm so glad that the explicit uh, uh, the, uh, warning, which I have no way of knowing how to turn off, will finally kind of make sense this Come time. Come in handy. Yeah. I, I, every month I try to turn it off, and every month it's there. Are there any other words we should say while we have the opportunity to? I mean, she seemed oh. to enjoy the word cock. Yeah. And Adam <laughs> yeah. was a bastard. And cunt was mentioned a few times. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. But only at, at the moments when it seemed like the characters were so enthralled, right? That's when the, that's when the language gets extra salty. It's just, you know, it's just, she's not throwing these words around, you know, every, every second page. It's like it's just in those, in those <laughs> moments when things get yeah. hot and heavy. They were used for impact, <laughs> so to sure speak. sure were. Yes. I, I thought there'd be more quim. It was mentioned once, I think. But no, I think it was more was than it once. Was it more than once? Oh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a nice word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sorry. This is the last time to read uh, five guys. I've enjoyed doing this. So. I dance. You can edit all this out. It'll be fine. We'll see. Uh, so, unfortunately, that's all the time we have this month. Thank you so much for joining us, dear readers. For next month, we're going to read and discuss Dawn by Octavia Butler. Lilith Iapo has just lost her husband and son when atomic fire consumes Earth the last stage of the planet's final war. Hundreds of years later, Lilith awakens deep in the hold of a massive alien spacecraft piloted by the Owen Collie, who arrived just in time to save humanity from extinction. They have kept Lilith and other survivors asleep for centuries as they learned whatever they could about Earth. Now it is time for Lilith to lead them back to her homeworld, but life among the Owen Collie on the newly resettled planet will be nothing like it was before. The Owen Collie survive by genetically merging with primitive civilizations, whether their new hosts like it or not. For the first time since the nuclear holocaust, Earth will be inhabited. Grass will grow, animals will run, and people will learn to survive the planet's untamed wilderness. But their children will not be human. Not exactly. Have comments or book suggestions for us? Send us an email. You can find all our contact info at the bottom of the page at wpl-podcast.winnipeg.ca. You can also find all our past episodes there, too. If you haven't already, subscribe to Time to Read on your favorite podcasting service and maybe leave us a review. Tell your book-loving friends about us, too. And until next time, make sure you find Time Time to to Read. There's the F word in this book too, I think. Oh, many times. Yeah. 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 Which is Always that a his- command. historically accurate? When did yes. that word come about? I remember looking it up once. Okay. Um, and I think fuck goes back to at least 1600. Oh. Um, so does that mean it could have appeared in Shakespeare? Yeah. Hmm. But I wonder if it, no, I'm sure we would have found that in high school. <laughs> Well, I remember. Maybe it's one of his plays that no one knows about. Right? Yeah, exactly. No one reads. When I was in high school, we uh, there was a day when like the band and the choir were off uh, on tour, or like a week where they were off, and so the those of us who stayed behind, we, it was like lots of films that week and and things like that. And our English teacher had us read a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, which includes swear words, 
and we were reading out loud oh. and he didn't tell us in advance. And the, my, I remember my classmate who was reading a passage and the word fuck was in there and he's reading along and he paused and he looked up at the teacher and the teacher looked back at him with kind of a, almost a nod <laughs> <laughs> and he just let it rip. <laughs> You started the sentence over and went, and then he said, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and he was so happy. 